CU just kind of has this insane reputation for all the amazing talent that's either resided here for a hot minute because of the music scene or has developed here. And it's been sad to see these people come and go. This is Champagne is also a band podcast. One songwriter, one song. I'm Sven, your host for a journey into the music of Champaign-Urbana. Recorded in the Blue Box studio with a songwriter from the Champaign-Urbana music scene, past or present. Champagne is also a band podcast is proud to be a part of the Champagne Showers podcast network. Welcome to Champagne is also a band podcast. Today I have Carrie Chandler, who you may know from such bands as Johnny May, which was a super long time ago, the Bashful Youngins, Deary, and her own solo work. So Carrie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Today we're going to be listening to your song, I Would, off of the album Inflorescence. And so without further ado, let's listen to the song. Thank you. 
Welcome back. So, Carrie, my first and favorite question to ask is, what came first, the words or the music? I kind of go back and forth when I write. Most of the time, a hook of some sort comes first, whether it's like a melody in my head, whether that's like instrumental or lyrics and melody. But this one, this particular situation, the lyrics and the melody came first. The melody and the lyrics kind of came together. Yeah, when I was writing this album or when Aaron and I were writing it, I was still in the mindset of like lyrics have to come at the same time of melody. Like I always Uh had a hard time separating the two and like sitting down and writing lyrics first. So most of the time those things came together. It's very Hmm. rare that like I'll think of a melody without some sort of lyrics. With this, were you thinking of the chorus? So you were like, and I don't feel right in my own skin. It's like that's something you just started singing. That's honestly the the part that came first was I don't feel right in my own skin the mirrors all crack I think that was kind of the basis of writing the song was like mirrors all crack and the lights go dim it's just I don't feel like me I don't I feel like something's off here and so that's definitely Hmm. the the basis of the song what was the inspiration what what brought this song about I was married at the time spoiler alert I'm no longer married (laughs) this song came to me before I really knew what it was about I kind of sat down and once that hook came I sat down and just wrote it in like 20 minutes and it was done. And oh. I got done and it was like a whirlwind. And I'm like, what the hell did I just write? And I wrote it from the standpoint of like kind of thinking that I was the problem. If I could love you better, I would. I feel like I'm not right. And then you leave, you know, little did I know that that relationship would come to an end. And you look at it from a different perspective now mm. of being like, you know, sometimes things just aren't good together. And so I can step out of the song now and look at it from a completely different viewpoint. But at the time that it was written, it was very much like, I was in this kind of dark place and I just didn't feel right in my own skin and that's how that hmm. started. The way that I'm hearing is sometimes do you use music as a way to reflect or bring out something subconsciously that you may parsing out in your mind and not really know that you're doing it is like a self-reflection kind of thing? Absolutely. I think that's how I process emotion and I don't know how to write something I'm working on, but I don't really know how to write outside of anything other than my perspective. So it's definitely how I process Mm. emotions. I'm a big writer, journaler. A lot of times I'll write like poetry, which I don't, I never take the poetry into like my songwriting as weird as that is, but Mm. I'll take ideas or concepts from something I've journaled and been like, I kind of want to write a song about this. This particular song definitely just came as I was hanging out around the house and the melody and the hook just kind of popped in my head. And before I knew it, the song was done and over. And like I said, I was just like, I don't know, what the hell did I just write? So if you wrote certain elements of this and and put them down on the paper and then started the process of recording it, at what point did you realize it was telling you something? What was that aha moment? Yeah, I got done with the song and I was proud of it. You know, the song was written in 6-8 and kind of had this bluesy feeling and that was something new that I hadn't written before, but it's just what the emotion brought out. And I was just going to table it because it didn't fit anything that Bashful Youngins was doing at the time. And Aaron and I were sitting down and putting songs together for the EP and I played this song for him and I was like, this isn't right for Bashful Youngins. And he said, well, if this isn't right for Bashful Youngins, then this is the way we're going because this is great and we're going to keep this. He was like, this is some of your best writing. At that point, I kind of reflected on it and I was like, well... This song must mean something important because it's reading through to people. As you brought this to the rest of the band or this got fleshed out in the recording process, I find it interesting. Maybe it's when I hear instead of a snare, they use a tambourine in my mind that always makes me think of chains. I think that it was interesting that the beginning of the song has that feel of imprisonment in a way. And And I think that's interesting that I feel... As you start this song, it has that sense of imprisonment, and then it's more like, no, this is why I left at the end. So, I I don't, maybe I'm mischaracterizing this, but that's how I feel. No, oddly enough, you're not mischaracterizing it at all, and that's kind of the aspect of when I got done with the song. 
And once I started hearing how it read to other people, it was like, oh, this isn't as inconspicuous as I thought. <laughs> it's kind of laid out on the table, you know, in the scenario. Yeah, just kind of how the sound came together gave it that angsty kind of entangled or just feeling stuck sort of situation. It read through with the way that the song was arranged. And I'll never forget, Smile Politely did a review of the album after it came out. When they were reviewing the song, that was just like, you know, a stifling, failing relationship. And it was like, mm. oh, wow, yep, it's not as inconspicuous as I thought. It may be on the surface level cut and dried, but I think that the words that you use are very, it creates just the right image in your head about the actual, or maybe even your own thoughts. I, I mean, you use certain idioms, throw sticks and stones and then break your bones. You know, I'm not proud of the way that I've grown. You take it into that point where you're still like blaming yourself for why isn't this working rather than like, why aren't we working? Okay, I'm a pretty open book about it. And I think the song could be translated to something other than a romantic relationship too. It could be strife with a family member or maybe a friend of something that's just not working out. When I wrote the song, it was from the standpoint of like, I'm the problem. Like I said, I was in a really dark place. Anxiety was high. You know, I was definitely dealing with a bout of depression. And then you kind of look at it from the outside and you eventually realize once you're removed away from the situation that that could probably be chalked up to an emotionally abusive situation. And it's important for people to recognize when they're in something like that, they may not understand and think that they're all the problem because that's the way that it's made to be. And I think the song helped me process a lot of that. An outside perspective now removed from the situation, the song means something absolutely completely different to me. So what does it mean to you now? To me, it means now on the outside of like, if you're in a situation like that, that's a toxic relationship or anything, again, whether it's romantic or family or friendship related, it is just two things that aren't working out. It's not necessarily always one person's fault. Mm. It's just the conglomeration of the two is not a healthy connection. And that's okay. And I think, you know, if this song helps people process that as well, then it's done its job. You had finished the song and then you brought it to Aaron. At this point, were you already working with a full band? We were already working with a full band from our first album, which was Stefan Johnson, Matt Chubb, and Mitchell Killo. We had already known that we wanted to record with them. Brian Hildebrand wasn't in the picture quite yet. Brian came in after we recorded, but we took those three into the studio. And because of that, we kind of took the arrangements of the songs to them, played it and said, do what you think comes natural. And I think for this song in particular, it was interesting because everybody from the band has a much different background of music and influences with everybody's influences together this kind of like six eight shuffle sort of feel came out very bluesy i have a lot of blues influences so i was happy with that but yeah it kind of ended with this more edgier angsty feel than some of our other mm. music and it was interesting but they definitely put all their own spin on it the breaks in the song, some of the buildups, that was everybody chiming in and saying, hey, I think this would be really cool here in this part. But it definitely brought it to Aaron first and was like, this isn't going to go on the record. And he was like, yeah, it is. <laughs> <Huh>. <laughs> so. well, honestly, I thought it was really interesting that Aaron's favorite song that he selected, Tennessee, is the first song on the EP. And then yours is the last song on the ep mm -hmm. i certainly wouldn't consider the songs in between as filler i don't know if that's demonstrating somehow that your two songs book ended this album where with greater degrees of where your own influences on each other like meshed in the center and then it tipped over towards yours but I, uh, anyway no that's exactly um, <laughs> how it was uh, oddly enough hand in mind was the first one that we wrote because we had been working on that one for a while and we just couldn't finish it we finally sat down and finished it. Aaron brought Tennessee to the table. Tennessee ended up being the first one on the album, but I would went last on the album and it was a unanimous opinion that it would go last because we just felt like that was a shift in our sound and a shift in our sound that we were really looking forward to and kind of embracing. So it went last on the album is like a just wait for our next stuff. And it's interesting because now we're getting ready to release new music and it's definitely continued to exude that kind of vibe and that sound. I don't feel like any song should follow this song on an album. Either it would be the end of a side on vinyl or it be at the end of the album. I feel like there's a, a meditative, reflective quality about it. Describe a little bit about the recording process and how people brought their ideas to bear. <laughs> yeah, everybody in the band comes from a different background. You know, Aaron and I 
have similar influences, but very different influences at the same time. Stefan is an all-round amazing musician. He can play everything proficiently, <laughs> which <laughs> makes me hate him, but I love him. I'm just jealous of all of his talent. And Matt came from this kind of ambient guitar world. And Mitchell came from a blues kind of funk background, jazz background, which was interesting because a lot of the bass lines on the EP, you can hear a lot of that influence, which was great. But all these kind of fit perfectly together for this particular song. And at first, this guitar solo for Matt was pretty out of his comfort zone. Not anymore. He's still absolutely amazing and has continued to grow, and it's awesome to watch him. But he started playing with us pretty young, and he was still pretty green. And we were at Earth Analog recording this, and we came back in to do the lead guitar parts after the bones of the songs were recorded. I think Matt got pretty frustrated with himself recording this because he's a great guitar player, but he's like, I can do that better. I can do that better. And James Treichler, we were recording with him, was also pushing him pretty hard because James really likes Matt's playing too, but was like trying to squeeze mm. whatever he could out of Matt. And then we got this solo, which was great. It just sounds like Matt's shredding guitar in some alley <laughs> somewhere. And then the guitar part was actually doubled. So James had the idea for Matt to come in and do the same part again and just mm. overdub it. So that's what gives it that big, full kind of screaming guitar sound. But... Matt's guitar playing is so great. He's one of my favorites. He just puts space where it needs to be. Mm. And I think that's really important in a song to get through the melody and, and the feeling of the song. If you put too many notes in one area, sometimes it right. can feel a little saturated. And he does a great job with that. It's interesting you bring that up because I do find, um, and this is my own criticism of me, is I always want to, I don't think about silence as as uh, as, I, as I pause. Um <laughs> I don't think about silence as as an instrument in itself or, or like part of the melody. I always feel like, oh, it has to be filled with something. It's like to be able to be quiet or have the notes be spare, I think is harder than being somebody who can shred and put like 20,000 notes in a really short bar. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think what makes a good guitar player for me personally, the ones that I gravitate towards are the ones that can shred, but they also know when to let it breathe. They know when to just let it have a moment for everybody to sit on for a second. And it's like, you can go into shredding again and putting all the notes in again, but just let it breathe for a second. Let it, let it sink in. Who came up with the long pause after the I'm falling to pieces? It's a very surprising spot. Thinking back, I'm pretty sure that was Stefan. And Stefan's great about thinking about the arrangement as a whole and kind of putting these little flares on it. And this was right in his wheelhouse, I think. And so that little area of silence, you know, coming in, you know, the lyrics are, and I'm falling to pieces, and then it just stops and lets it breathe and holds for a second. But you still hear the cymbals going and like mm. rattling in that part. And I love it. Oh, yeah. Kind of the remnants of what remains. Yeah. Wait. <laughs> Did I just, yeah, whatever. <laughs> I'm a sentimental creature, so I put sentiment behind absolutely everything. So, but with that comes, I want it to be sentimental for each individual person. So whatever, hmm. whatever that silence means to you, go for it. I'm going to just mention what my favorite part is in the song. I feel like the, and I don't feel right in my own skin and the mirrors all crack and the lights go dim. I think developing a good chorus or a hook is so much pressure because it's like, how much am I going to believe in what I say that I can say it multiple times, right? Like, yeah, you're going to have to return to it and you're going to have to say it. So, the repeat of the same words, and I find it fascinating that there's that recontextualization each time after a verse is finished, you not feeling right in your own skin becomes less about what you think you do and more about you don't feel right in your skin anymore because where you are isn't the right place to be. Right. You know, so it's like this continuous recontextualization of the same words, which that must be the thing that I love the most about songwriting is that it changes just by repeating. It seems like that should be impossible, but somehow by repeating, it changes it. So. Yeah, I think the choruses that I'm envious of when I hear other people write is you can have, you know, two or three verses that are all about something completely different. And then for some reason, they find a chorus that works and relates to every single verse. And for me personally, if what I hear is a melody or a hook at first is not the chorus, I'm screwed. <laughs> like, oh. It takes me a minute huh. to because I'm a, a bit of a I wouldn't say perfectionist, but I'm definitely particular about choruses because of the reason that you just mentioned is 
you're kind of stuck with that. You got to keep coming back to it. So you really got to like it and believe in it in order to center a song around it. This brings into my mind, do you think about writing the chorus and believing in the chorus and then in a certain sense reverse engineering the verses to fit into it if you were to put that in the center and then draw these lines out how would you think about how that relates to returning to the chorus yeah i try not to get hung up on that too much because then i'll never finish a song and that honestly happens to me a lot i have so many half written songs so Mm -hmm. i try to let it go naturally to me so if the verse comes first I really struggle to find a chorus. Sometimes I don't, but most of the time I struggle Mm. to find a chorus. And if I find a chorus, it's usually easier for me to write verses around it. Every single songwriting scenario is different for me, but if I start with the chorus, I definitely have to think a little bit harder about what the verses are gonna look like. And if I do write it all at one time, there's definitely some retrofitting in the editing process of going back and being like, well, this line doesn't necessarily make sense. How can I write this better or word it better? What is your favorite part in the song? My favorite part in the song, honestly, the guitar solo. (laughs) I just, I was really proud of what Matt did for this guitar solo because, again, it's much different than anything that we had really done before. But for me, as far as what I wrote and my part in it of writing the song, you know, with the chords and everything, I was just happy that I sat down and wrote this in 20 minutes. Like, to me, that means I had something to say. I had a well thought out process. A lot of times I can't write a song unless the thought process of the emotion is done. If the emotion's not completely processed, I struggle to finish the song about it. This song just came out. Just I kind of just like threw it up. <laughs> That's what it yeah. was. And I think I was the most proud of that, of just getting done and being like, That's a pretty damn good song. And I don't say that about a lot of my writing. It seems like, you know, between Tennessee and and I would I feel like these are both very memorable songs in concert. They have a great emotional context that you want to connect with. They serve well as staples in your concerts. Yeah, and I would say that's probably because a collective is the band. Those are probably two of our most favorite songs Mm. to perform. We just, we all have a lot of fun with them. They're songs that allow us to do our own thing or improvise a little bit and change a little bit each song. But we're so used to doing both of these songs that we've been able to take our own liberties and we have a lot of fun playing it out live. Why did you pick this song as the song you wanted to talk about today? I picked this song because I'm getting really excited. We do have a new single coming out, spoiler alert again, but I'm getting excited to release that song. The sound of it is very different from what we have done historically. And I would was kind of the shift into that sound. And so it's nice to go back and reflect about that song and what influence it had on us as a band or as writers and see how it's influenced this new sound that we have kind of created and embodied. Champagne is also a band podcast is proud to support Exile on Main Street. Exile on Main Street, located in the old train station building at 100 North Chestnut Street in downtown Champaign, has been helping to build record collections since 2004. Carrying a wide array of new and used LPs, CDs, and video games. Exile on Main Street has something for just about any music enthusiast and old school gaming devotee. Exile also hosts regular free live music shows on its stage, so be sure to check out their Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages for the up-to-date details on the next upcoming event. Open seven days a week. They can be reached by phone at 217-398-MAIN. That's 217-398-6246. Welcome back. So, Carrie, do you have any favorite Champaign-Urbana venues? I feel like I'm partial to the Rose Bowl, obviously, because I just love everybody that's incorporated there. I obviously work there. But I feel like what they've done as far as the music scene, even from before, you know, Martin Charlie owned it, it's been a very eclectic situation since Martin and Charlie have, have had it. It's very welcoming Everybody that I know that plays there that's not from here is like, oh man, this place has just such a good vibe to it. I really miss like the high dive, uh, the mm-hmm. accord, whichever you want to look at that. And then I really miss Cowboy Monkey. 
you know, nostalgia, yeah. but Cowboy Monkey is where we got our start. And that room has just done a lot for us. And I miss mm-hmm. those venues greatly, but definitely as far as ones that are still here in town um, and functioning Rose Bowl Tavern takes precedent for sure. So was the Cowboy Monkey your first Champaign-Urbana venue that you played at? Yeah. So huh. we started doing open mics when Mike Ingram was running the open mics there. It was actually a funny story because Aaron and I, after we started kind of playing music together and experimenting with things, we had been with some friends that night and we're like, hey, let's go check out open mic. We haven't really been there. Let's go check it out and see what happens. We drank a lot that night. <laughs> we, we drank a little too much that night. We started requesting songs and Mike was like, you guys seem like you know a lot. Like, do you just want to get up here and play? Hmm. And we're like, sure, let's do it. And it wasn't great by any means. We definitely, we shouldn't have been invited back <laughs> after that point. But Mike was like, well, you have to come back now. And we did. And that's how we got our start. And then our EP release for Inflorescent ended up being at Cowboy Monkey. That was kind of our tour kickoff going from playing at open mics there and being supported by that scene to selling out Cowboy Monkey for our EP release was a pretty surreal experience and sentimental for sure, just because that's where we started. And it seemed like that was a great kind of kickoff for us for tour. And yeah, I was sad to see it go in the capacity that it was at that point. It was such a good sounding stage. From what I understand is being on stage, it sounded great, but also being an audience member and hearing it. And it was a good intimate venue, but it was also large enough you could host a bunch of people yeah it was a nice intimate venue to the point where bands passing through it would be an attainable venue for them i would say mm-hmm. because it had its own built-in crowd but it was just the vibe of the space where you walk in i equate it i don't know if anybody's been to knoxville tennessee but there's a place on market square called preservation pub and it's the same vibe it's kind of its own built-in crowd but you walk in and there's the stage there's all these places to sit that's kind of like candlelit really nice you can just always expect that there's going to be music there. And it was nice at Cowboy Monkey that you could pull up the calendar and see that a lot of times there was something happening there pretty much every night of the week. And now Rose Bowl has kind of taken on that vibe and that responsibility, which is great. But it was a nice space for sure. In addition, Rose Bowl has up their game in terms of the sound system that they've got there and the stage. Not to say that I didn't appreciate what it had before and what it did, but it's like, let's just take this cake and put some icing on it too. You know, that's what it feels like. But They've put so much work into that place, even from just thoroughly kind of giving it a scrub down just to kind of give it a new start to they recently just put in a brand new sound system and you probably haven't heard it yet but it's only like a couple weeks old and it sounds so good and they've Mm. done a lot of things to increase the sound whether it's hearing it in the back of the bar or at the front of the stage or hearing a more clear sound or freeing up the stage a little bit for performers they've really put so much work into it and invested in it the girls rock cu is super important to the scene and i feel like it's seeking out the voice that we need to have in music. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you got involved with Girls Rock CU? Yeah, so Isaac had actually brought the idea of bringing Girls Rock CU to Champaign-Urbana as part of the Girls Rock Alliance. If you don't know much about Girls Rock, it's actually an international alliance that has different chapters in each city. And Isaac had brought the idea to bringing a chapter to CU and they had kind of put out a call to people if they were interested in getting involved. And I had been involved with First Gig Rock Camp and I loved my experience with that. And I really was passionate about empowering women in the scene or girls in the scene because I didn't necessarily have that. And I realized how crucial it was when Isaac had brought that idea. I was very interested and hopped on. Seeing the whole process from start to finish to running the first camp has been pretty surreal. And it's definitely weighed on the entire board of us not being really able to have a camp the past couple years. We tried. We really planned. We have a great partnership with Parkland College lined up for this coming year. And we did last year. We were looking forward to that. But we just didn't feel it was safe. We didn't feel like with the amount of steps that we would have to take to make it a safe environment this past year that we could pull it off. We kind of knew our limits. And so we decided to take the step to regroup. But it's been great to work with that. I've been so appreciative of how far it's grown. And as I said, it's weighed on all of us pretty heavily that we haven't been able to uphold the mission 
as we feel like it should have these past mm. couple years because of COVID. And that's been really difficult for everybody because we know the need is still there. But we're really right. looking forward to kind of launching things again this year, hoping that everything's going to be in a much safer spot now that children can get vaccinated and we feel more comfortable with that. It's been incredibly rewarding and I'm so excited to see what we can expand upon with that mission as well. The world has heard my white male perspective way too often and having a different point of view or or just a new view or a view that should have been able to speak up earlier is so enriching for everyone. And I feel like, you know, I, I, I don't want to over talk, but it's exciting. It's this revitalization of something that you could say is getting stale by being, you know, over maleness or over menness. Watching the kids grow from which, by the way, it's not just for like cis female, it's definitely for trans and non-binary youth as well. But watching these kids grow from day one of working with sometimes complete strangers to seeing these kids grow as individuals together and become more empowered or passionate about what they're doing is kind of the whole goal of the camp. So like, yes, we use music as our medium of which we empower the youth, but that's really not what Girls Rock is about. It's about giving a voice to those individuals that may feel that their voice is quieter in a different crowd. And so I hear the argument a lot that's like, well, girls, non-binary youth also need to know how to incorporate themselves with a male or a cis male audience. But what they don't realize is unless you are that, you don't really realize how intimidating that could be. You know, you're in this atmosphere of, you know, with a bunch of men or males and feeling like maybe your voice isn't as pertinent because you're in that group where mm. you feel like maybe it's not as important. There's definitely merit to isolating these particular individuals and giving them a space to feel confident and empowered in what they're doing to put them back in that scenario and be like, you know what? I do have something to say. I do have something to bring to the table and just giving them a safe space to expand upon that mindset and, you know, that confidence, I would say. It's like some of that's a hot take, you know, of people having an opinion about, well, if, you know, girls or non-binary youth want to feel empowered, they should be incorporated with the male audience or the cis male audience so that they know how to handle those situations. Like, yes, but there has to be a foundation behind that. There has huh. to be a foundation to letting them know that they have the confidence and the ability to use their voice in the way that it should be used to, to measure up to those things. Because it can be very intimidating, especially yeah. in music. Well, I was just thinking about how, you know, if if that is your day-to-day -day experience is to always be overwhelmed by, or, or whatever, overshadowed, to finally have the moment where you can be completely free of that and then be able to experience what that's like without any impediment, that has to be extremely valuable. I'm speaking from what I would perceive as an experience because, I mean, I have my own issue of not being able to specifically relate to that because I'm always as who I am I don't experience the world as oh hey look you're being put into a position of power every single time and then it doesn't automatically process in in my mind that way yeah and sometimes it's not even necessarily a position of power it's a position from a place of privilege where you don't realize the privileges that you had I was the same way in the CU area as a musician, I didn't realize how good I had it. I didn't realize that it was a problem. We do kind of have our own really amazing niche of acceptance and inclusivity in this community. For example, when we went out on tour, I would have sound men that wouldn't specifically talk to me about what I wanted for a sound preference in my monitor or for my equipment. They would go up to Aaron or Brian or Stefan and ask for me. And I was like, what? I'm right here. You can just ask me. And they would say the same thing. of like, I don't know. She's right here. I ask her. But mm. you don't realize, once I got out of this community, I was like, oh, shoot, we actually, we have a pretty awesome thing going here. And that's not how it is for other people. And I think that's the thing that really made me want to focus on empowering women or non-binary or trans youth in music because we have our own little pocket and bubble here in CU. And there's still things to expand upon in this community, even, of course. But you go outside of the communities and it's it's very different. That kind of leads into my final question in this segment. What makes a good music scene? To me, what makes a good music scene is community. And to me, community means supporting each other, 
being there for each other, being relevant in what each other is doing, meaning being aware of all the things happening within the community. And I think that's one thing that CU really has going for itself, as I feel like all of us support each other pretty well, even from diverse scenes of music or diverse genres of music. It's always been one of those things that's like all the musicians know each other for the most part. I think there's still a lot that we can improve upon with that. And maybe it's just a lull in the music scene. Of course, there's always lulls in the music scene, and we know that. But, you know, that goes along with inclusivity and diversity and making sure that everybody's being seen and heard. And I do feel like this community does a great job of doing that when you compare it to other communities that I've had the privilege of of being involved in and speaking to. What can the CU music scene do better? I think right now the venue space is an issue you know you see this rise of urbana venues happening which is amazing but i think of like when champagne had all the venues we had cowboy we had memphis on main we had the accord we had the velvet elvis we had all these scenes within almost a three or four block radius of each other operating in a very high capacity with bands every night and we didn't have any issues with thinking you weren't going to get a crowd because the other bar had something going on it was kind of this cumulative effect where you could walk to different bars and it would be great for each other because of that. And I would like to see the rise of that again in Champaign. It's been really sad that we've lost a lot of our venues. I understand why that happens, but I would definitely like to see a rise behind those things happen again. And I mean, I wouldn't even mind seeing that happen in Urbana, but I do feel like that is even struggling to have enough venue spaces to create that uh, walk to yeah you know see a band go to another band see a band go to another yeah band. i mean between the rose bowl and like nola's there's a little bit of a bleed over there i feel like not as great as it could be and that's um that's just going to take time it's just starting up you know music is just starting to happen again in a safer more comfortable capacity for people throughout the pandemic So I feel like as the warm weather comes and all these changes have come to Urbana, that we're going to see a rise of that again soon. It's just going to take time. Every venue or every scene kind of has this rise and fall of things happening. But I feel like everybody is invested in continuing to empower the music scene here in town. And everybody's in this same mind space of wanting that to happen and working together. And so I think it's just going to take time. CU just kind of has this insane reputation for all the amazing talent that's either resided here for a hot minute because of the music scene or has developed here and it's been sad to see these people come and go but i remember i was in a music class at the u of i and the professor who was not from here said something about well cu's never really had much of a local music scene and i like wrote her back this novel about like i'm sorry uh Here's the whole history of C music scene. Like, at, it's actually a very large music hub. And she wrote me back and was like, yeah, I apologize. This information's outdated. Like, I need to update it. I was an out-of-townie. I have since come to recognize what the CU music scene was. And I'm like, yeah, you should probably update this. I would definitely, yeah. definitely vouch for it. And, you know, the ironic thing is that all of the music scene shares only five drummers. <laughs> <laughs> you're not wrong i know Uh, well it's just they're all very talented drummers and we're very happy to have them but if you're a drummer outside the c music scene please come here we need more people (laughs) yes but it's just like okay which which five bands do you play for automatically if if you're a drummer i i wish i had i don't know sometimes play picking up the guitar seems like the wrong move well, I, I get disappointed in myself because I actually started as a drummer. Really? Yeah. I was huge in a drumline in high school and middle school. I mean, that's what I focused on. I was a rudimental, classically trained drummer. And I was supposed to go to college for it. Long story short, I hurt my back and that was not an attainable goal anymore. But I mean, I did all the things. Bands of America. I trained with University of Kentucky drumline, the, you know, the Cavaliers, all these DCI people. Wow. And I really wish I would have continued on with drums because I could have been a... I was never really great at kit. I was very much a rudimental drummer, marching percussionist. But if I would have focused on that more, it would have been a great skill to have. I think I I can pick it up still, but I need to spend some time. I mean, I'm just grateful. I think this scene has a lot going for itself. And we've been given some great opportunities as the Bashful Youngins that I feel like we wouldn't have gotten elsewhere or the support or the empowerment behind what we do had it not been for this scene. So I feel like I'm indebted to it. I definitely call this place home. It's easy sometimes to take for granted the community you have here. And I don't at all. It's I'm, I'm constantly grateful for 
the opportunities that have come our way and the things we've been able to do because of this scene. Even in the midst of the current coronavirus pandemic, the Jubilee Cafe is continuing to serve packaged home-cooked meals free to all every Monday evening, 5 to 6.30 p.m. Meals are available for pickup outside the 6th Street door to the Community United Church of Christ in Champaign, Illinois, 805 South 6th Street. Jubilee Cafe's mission remains the same. Feed hungry people by cooking healthy and delicious meals. We are open to anyone who cares to receive a meal. For information on the meal or how to volunteer, go to the Jubilee Cafe CUCC Facebook page or email us at jubilee.cafe at community-ucc.org. Welcome back. So, Carrie, what is your favorite non-musical thing or things? Oh, that's a tough one. I love the outdoors. I'm constantly hiking or traveling. If I make it to one national park a year, I'm happy. So I like to go camping. Love all those things. Animals. My career has been taking care of animals the past 10 plus years. Definitely a soft spot for animals. And also writing. During the pandemic, I went back to school for creative writing as a way to kind of expand my songwriting, but I found this whole new love for just like creative nonfiction and poetry. That's made it much easier for me to be a writer. I feel like I don't have the pressures of having to put a song behind it. I can just write down what I'm thinking and the, the form that I'm thinking it in. I've had some really great professors through the U of I that have been very supportive and have helped me with that journey. Those are kind of the big three, I would say. Do you have a favorite national park? I went to Joshua Tree for my birthday a couple years ago. Absolutely amazing. I know there's all sorts of skepticism behind it being like a spiritual retreat. Mm. And there's definitely that aspect, but I feel like it's just because it's so vast. You're in this area where there's desert and cacti, but then you go and there's mountains. And then there's like an oasis in the middle of the mountains. And then you're also seeing these giant like rock formations. It's just, it's very eclectic and the whole park changes. So there's definitely different views. My other favorite one has just been pretty much anywhere in Colorado. I mean, Rocky Mountain mm. National Park. There's so many things to see in Rocky Mountain, Black Canyon. I feel the most connected and, and grounded as far as not thinking about other things when I'm in nature. So a lot of the times I'm writing or journaling when I'm in nature and it's nice to take a break from things to do that. So do you go out and camp? Yeah, I love camping. Oh, okay. <laughs> like if it's not a couple nights of me setting up a tent somewhere, like with my partner, I will take my car and camp out of my car for a night. Not as often as I'd like, just because with music and everything, I'm very busy and getting the dog situated. But he loves camping too. And he, oh. he knows the word hiking. So anytime <laughs> I'm putting my boots on, he's ready to roll. He knows what's going on. Getting away and being in nature. I love Homer Lake. That's my go-to place. And then I feel like I'm divulging my secret spot. But there's actually this little park just adjacent to Homer Lake called Hidden Anchors. And if you're just looking for a little like out and back trail that goes along the river, I go to the river because my dog is obsessed with water. That's what he has to do if we go hiking is like playing the river forever. And it's a really great trail. I'll go there and just decompress for a while. And 20 minutes outside of town, it's not bad. Are you doing short story? Or are you like doing like approaching a novel or, or what, what do you... With uh, being back in school for creative writing, they've kind of made us uh explore all of those avenues and so because of that i've been able to find out what i like or what mm -hmm. i'm good at creative nonfiction essays are really fun for me because it's stream of conscious thoughts it's like i don't know if anybody listens to david sedaris but i love him and i love the way that he's able to interpret real-time things that he's seeing or experiencing with like this crass humor or different outtake on it. I don't have that humor. Like I said, I'm a very sentimental, like emotional creature. So I'm a little bit more lyrical in the way that I present those things in writing. But creative nonfiction has given me a great way to step outside the realm of poetry or having to write in a particular stanza and just writing stream of consciousness paragraphs or the way that I'm seeing things. And then poetry has given me this great aspect to be able to write what I would put in a song, but without the constraints of having to put it in a song form. 
So instead of writing verse, chorus, first chorus, bridge, I'm just writing things as they come to me in that sense. And the pressure's off a little bit to make a whole thing out of it. I want to put some of my poetry out, things that I haven't like put out into the world that don't necessarily fit song form. Some things give me an inspiration to write a song behind, but most of the time when I'm writing poetry or creative nonfiction, I just want it to stay as is. I don't want it to be a song. If anything, it mm. just helps me be a better songwriter. But those things are very separate from songwriting. It's very, very different thought process. I think there's this assumption always that poetry can be turned into a song. And that's not necessarily always the case. I mean, definitely you can take thoughts or stanzas or, you know, parts of what you would want to be a chorus from that. One thing I've learned is if you look at a song in writing, it's not poetry necessarily. It's a song. It's two very different things. I mean, you're either rhyming, which in poetry world, most of the time you try not to rhyme a whole lot. You want the feeling and the emotion of the poetry and the words to speak for themselves. Whereas in a song, you're trying to emote that while also being musical. I feel like I wouldn't be a good poet had it not been from a musical background and my way of being able to put feelings and emotions into words and expanding on how to convey those emotions I wouldn't be as good of a songwriter and I still have a lot to expand huh. on and learn from that. But that's one of the reasons I wanted to go back to school for creative writing. And I just, I found this other love and passion adjacent from songwriting that I didn't expect. You know, even within poetry, everybody has their own style and their own form. And that's what's great about poetry is I don't write like other poets. And I don't consider myself a poet by any means. I just, I like the the artistic form. But it's the same thing with songwriting. I took creative writing as a way for me to expand on using imagery and feeling an emotion outside of like the, you know, straightforward lyrics in songs. I wanted to be able to get better at it. And then you learn they actually just both feed off of each other. Like rhythm is still extremely important in poetry. It's probably one of the most important things of what makes a decent poem is using rhythm with the way that the words come across. But it's really interesting just to see how different poets or different writers use those things because the most lyrical poet doesn't always necessarily have to have great rhythm and a great rhythmic poet doesn't always have to be the most lyrical and so i think i've really liked creative writing because it's just that it's creative and there's such a huge spectrum of ways that you can write that make you feel empowered that just because you don't write like another writer doesn't mean that you're bad just means that you have a different style of writing. And I credit the professors that I had at the university of really instilling that and empowering each other to use each student's voice. Like your poetry is not bad or your writing's not bad just because it's not like your classmates. It's just your own style of writing and I'm gonna teach you how to be better at it. They don't try to change the way you write. They try to help you expand on the way that you specifically write. And I've been very grateful for that. Where did your love of animals come from? Like. You know, when did that start? I grew up in the country. And so we always had, you know, stray animals wandering in. I always had at least a dog. There was definitely a time where we had like, you know, 10 to 15 barn cats. And they're barn cats, so they're not taken care of. So I took care of them. If they were sick, I would nurse them back to health. I had horses. I was always very into their care. And I was connected with animals. So when... I had to choose a profession, you know, I felt like I had to choose a profession leaving high school. It was like, yeah, I feel like animals make sense. I actually applied to school for psychology. I really wanted to go to school for psychology. I feel like a lot of students want to go to school for psychology, but I just felt like my calling was animals and I wanted to do music too, but I didn't know how to do it at that point in time. I was very defeated by music at the time because of my back injury. And so I went to school for animal science at first. So I was the first of the Parkland Pathways program where Parkland Pathways is you take your gen eds at Parkland and then you take all of your core classes for your major at the university. So you're a dual student at both. And I was the very first class for that. And so I did animal sciences and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I was kind of focused on feedlot operations. I wanted to do like nutrition. Then I got a year into it and I was like, eh, I really want to like do the care part. Mm. And I was between being a veterinarian and being a veterinary nurse. And my counselor at the time was like, why don't you get involved in pre-vet club at the university and go to some of their lectures and see what you think. And I did. And one of the lectures I went to was like a, you know, evening like dinner and learn where somebody comes and talks to you hmm. about what to expect in the profession. And they laid out 
what the cost of vet school is versus the job challenges versus the paying salary in most scenarios or in a realistic scenario. And my counselor was like, you know, Parkland College really has one of the top veterinary nursing schools in the nation. You should see what you think about that. And I did. I applied for that and I got in and I was hooked. I started working immediately for the university afterwards and then I became a rehab specialist. I got an extra credential to deal specifically with physical rehabilitation with animals recovering from injuries. And yeah, that had been a passion of mine for years. Dealing with animal welfare has its challenges in itself as far as both on your mental health and your physical health. <laughs> I've, I've dealt, uh, I've picked up a lot of paralyzed animals that are way more than my body weight. <laughs> Which isn't good for my back either. It's definitely been a huge part of my life. And I feel like I connect with animals. And yeah, it's just an innate part of my personality. Carrie, thank you for (laughs) coming all the way out here and telling me about your song, I Would. Talking so passionately about the music scene and Girls Rock See You. What makes a good music scene? And thank you for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to the next chapter. And I appreciate you having me here to talk about everything. Thank you for listening to Champagne is Also a Band podcast. This is Carrie Chandler from the Bashful Youngins reminding you great music is out there. Go find it where you live. You almost have an NPR voice. It's so good. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to Champagne is also a band podcast. This is Carrie Chandler from the Bashful Youngins reminding you great music is always out there. Go find it where you live. I just put it's always out there again. Um, let me do it again. I mean, I can literally cut out the word. It's fine. Always. Just let me... Re- <laughs> oh, do it, do it, do it. I'll cut the word out. I'm adding things. <laughs>